1: Hello, and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father, how are you?
0: Very time, very, very fine, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> Good yeah, well, maybe, not as fine as it might appear to be. Uh, you doing well? Yes, Father. Good. Yeah. Right off the start, I'd, I'd like to ask people to pray or some dear souls who are in need of prayers, I certainly would appreciate them. Uh, gentleman, Stephen Sejarto, father of uh, some uh, young children, and uh, he's got cancer and is very sick, so please uh, pray for him, pray for a Therese, uh, Condit, You know, one of our graduates, is quite ill right now, uh, for Eleanor, Eleanor Drexel, our faithful viewers, right? And uh, there are quite a few others. A little baby was just born, in fact, a newborn baby, uh, Jane Elise, uh, is undergoing, well, not just an operation, but a series of operations, uh, life-saving operations. Uh, So a tough way to start a newborn's life, but uh, we should uh, lend our prayers to help. So there are quite a number of uh, other intentions also to pray for, but I, I do ask you to please keep those intentions in your
1: prayers. Absolutely. Uh, well, Father, we, uh, the last couple of programs, we haven't had a chance to answer too many emails. So I'd like to try and get through as many as we could tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one that we wanted to mention we've had for some time, um, many, many programs ago, we talked about the the syllabus of errors. Um and uh, we, I believe you remarked at the time, Father, uh, in regards to the infallibility of the document that uh, there might not necessarily have been a definitive statement one way or the other, um, whether or not that the, uh, the syllabus of errors was in fact infallible, everything in it. And one of our viewers wanted to um, see if you could clarify that a bit. He said uh, he would find it supremely ironic if a people syllabus condemning errors was itself fallible and contained errors of its own. So he, um, I believe, he he provided you with a um, with a document, Father, that he believes might uh, might answer the question. And I know you've had a chance to read through it. So could you clear up this matter, Father, about the syllabus of the errors and and the infallibility of it?
0: Well, when he says he would find it supremely, but ironic, I guess that a a document uh, would condemn errors and then. Uh, have errors of its own because it's not infallible. But well, just because something is not infallible doesn't make it erroneous, right? Uh, not everything the Church proposes uh, in all of the encyclicals of the popes and so on is is uh, defined Catholic dogma, mm-hmm. right? But the fact that it's not infallibly uh, defined doesn't make it erroneous, erroneous certainly. And um, so there's... I, I think a certain misconception in that. Um the reason why this is important and the reason why this uh this writer contacted us about this question is because uh when Pope Pius the 10th, Saint Pius the 10th issued Lamentabili sane um July 3rd 1907 um he was condemning errors of the modern times, condemning errors the, the martyrs, really, it was associated with what was to be his uh, encyclical Paschanti de medici of September 8, 1907. This preceded that by a few months, and uh, actually just two months. And um, in that uh, document, Lamentaviri Sade, or what is known as the Syllabus of Errors in St. Pius tenth. Uh, gave a compendium of errors that were being taught, you know, uh, which were uh, very inimical to the faith and very dangerous to the church. For example, he, he, number five of the syllabus of errors, he has, since the deposit of faith contains only revealed truths, the church has no right to pass judgment on the assertions of the human sciences. Well, I imagine there are those who might propound that today, uh, France is being one of them, right? This, But this proposition was condemned by St. Pius X, right? Um, and, uh, well, there, as I say, there, there, here we have 65 uh, propositions, or is it 66? Uh, 65 propositions that were con- uh, condemned. Um, the last one being, modern Catholicism can be reconciled with true science only if it is transformed into a non-dogmatic Christianity that is to say into a broad and liberal Protestantism so um, the these this gives you the tenor you know of the, of the uh, syllabus of errors anyone can go online and, and look at this list of errors condemned by Saint Pius the and uh, that's what the issue was then. The, the, uh, the gentleman who originally wrote about that was referring to these condemned propositions of 1907 and uh, was saying, are these uh, infallibly condemned? And um, is this document itself infallible? Okay. Well, actually, ultimately the church itself has to answer that question, right? Um, there's usually infalli- theres usually a certain formula of language that is given uh, to connote infallibility. When, when a decree is delivered infallibly by a supreme pontiff, he often—well, uh, I should say he always should—use the language necessarily uh, that necessarily conveys the idea he's—he's—he's he's con- he's, uh, speaking with a supreme apostolic authority. And with the authority of the holy apostles, Peter and Paul, and so on. But this document, lamentabilisane, Sane, uh, the syllabus of Eris, ends with uh, the following Thursday, the fourth day of the same month and year, all these matters were accurately reported to our most holy Lord, Pope Pius Tenth. His holiness approved and confirmed the decree of the most eminent fathers in order that each and every one of the above-listed propositions be held by all as condemned and proscribed. And this was actually issued by the notary, the the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. Uh, Does that take away any authority from it? Of course not. Uh, The notary is actually certifying the fact that the Holy Father, St. Pius X, actually approved of this statement. uh, And and approved of the condemnations of all of these propositions. But uh, again, the language is very important. You know, because when you when you have a, an infallibly decreed statement of the Holy See uh, by a Pope, it uses specific legal language to make it very clear that we're invoking our supreme apostolic authority. Authority. So there was a decree uh, issued uh, by Pope Saint Pius the Tenth again in 1907, and this was a motu proprio of Saint Pius the Tenth on this very subject, and this was issued on the 18th of November in 1907, okay? So this followed uh, the decree Pascendi Dominici Gregis, the Encyclical of St. Pius X, Condemning Modernism, by about two months. So you had this Lamentabilisane in July, early July of 1907. Two months later you had Pascendi Dominici Gregis, the Encyclical, Condemning Modernism, and two months later you have this document, Praestantia Scripturae, a motu proprio of Pope Pius X. And this Praestantia Scripturae, uh, issued in November of 1907, is on the Bible and against the modernists. And Lamentabilisane, the syllabus is justly famous. The uh, decree against the modernism, uh, condemning the errors of the modernists, um, as you know, is, uh, is justly famous de Merici Gregis, but Praestantia Scripturae is not very well known. But it is interesting, certainly, because it actually refers to the two previous degrees, decrees, and their authority. And so it, it actually speaks to what our writer is asking about here, right? What is the authority of these? Uh, this Praestantia Scripturae of November 1907 begins with a motu proprio of our most holy Lord Pius X by Divine Providence Pope on the decisions of the Pontifical Commission on the Bible and on the censures and penalties against those who neglect to observe the prescriptions against the errors of the modernists. So here, uh, in Prestancia Scripturae, Pope Pius X is actually talking about those who have come out basically in defiance of Pascendi, and in defiance of the syllabus, and he's talking about uh, what does the church make of them? What what censures are they subject to? And about oh about halfway through the this uh, motu proprio, Saint Pius X says this: Wherefore we find it necessary to declare and to expressly prescribe, and by this our act we do declare and decree that all are bound in conscience to submit to the decisions of the biblical commission relating to doctrine, which have been given in the past and which shall be given in the future, in the same way as to the decrees of the Roman congregations approved by the pontiff. Nor can all those escape the note of disobedience or temerity and consequently of grave sin, who in speech or writing contradict such decisions. And this, besides the scandal they give, and the other reasons for which they may be responsible before God for other temerities and errors which generally go with such contradictions." So in that one paragraph he talks about uh, the century of temerity, he talks about a grave sin. He says they're bound in conscience to follow the decrees and not to contradict them. This is important, as our, our writer points out, because of developments since Vatican II, where Novus Ordo popes have actually come out just directly against, notably Francis, directly contradicting uh, the syllabus of errors, the condemned propositions there, and promoting things that the Church has already condemned. Um, and so, you know, the implication are that, well, Francis, you know, how can he be a pope and an anti-pope at the same time? If he is spouting doctrines that are condemned, infallibly condemned, right, and that's why he's asking: Were these infallibly condemned? Is lamentabilis sane uh, the syllabus of errors? Is that infallible? Are those errors condemned infallibly? And how can it be that a Francis would come up and, and directly, defiantly, uh, openly contradict them? Okay, so that's the issue. That's what it is at is it issue here. And Saint Pius the Tenth continues here. Moreover, in order to check the daily increasing audacity of many modernists who are endeavoring by all kinds of sophistry and devices to detract from the force and efficacy not only of the decree lamentabili sane exitu, the so-called syllabus, issued by our order by the Holy Roman and Universal Inquisition on July 3rd of of the present year, but also of our encyclical letters, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, given on September 8th of this same year, we do by our apostolic authority repeat and confirm both that the decree of the Supreme Sacred Congregation and those encyclical letters of ours, adding the penalty of excommunication against their contradictions, against their contradictors, and this we declare and decree that should anybody which may, God forbid, be so rash as to defend any one of the propositions, opinions, or teachings condemned in these documents, he falls ipso facto, which means automatically, under the censure contained under the chapter docentes of the Constitution Apostolice Sedis, which is the first among the excommunications, latte sententiae. It means it simply is an excommunication that happens by the very fact that, uh, right? Uh, anyway, continuing here, I'm not trying to get off the track, simply reserved, reserved to the Roman pontiff. So um, there are excommunications that are, that are automatic, and there are excommunications that require an actual decree of excommunication, okay? And um, but this, he says, is an excommunication that is simply reserved to the Roman Pontiff himself. Okay, there are a number of excommunications that are can be can be dispensed with, or you might say, absolved by the local bishop, um, or the one having ordinary jurisdiction. In any case, uh, and but this is a an excommunication reserved to the Roman Pontiff himself. This excommunication is to be understood as salvis penis, which may be incurred by those who have violated in any way the said documents as propagators and defenders of heresies when their propositions, opinions, and teachings are heretical, as has happened more than once in the case of the adversaries of both these documents, especially when they advocate the errors of the modernists, that is, the synthesis of all heresies. Okay, Tom, can you sum up in, let's say, 25 words or less, exactly what this means?
1: Don't contradict St. Pius X.
0: Right, right. But uh, does he say here that uh, the, the document Lamentave Visane Exitu, or the syllabus of errors, is uh, infallible in its, in its condemnations?
1: Not explicitly. He doesn't
0: ex- actually say that, right? Okay. And you see, this is the problem. Because as you read this document, as you, as you read this document, Restancea Scripturae, which comments on the authority and uh, therefore the penalty, right? the, the, the authority of the previous documents and therefore the penalty for contradicting them, you see it involves a certain amount, not only of interpretation, but it involves a certain amount of research, too. And, uh, but, but what you can make out of this is the following, if they may in, interpret this, okay? He says, in order to check the daily increasing audacity of many modernists, by the way, in the paragraph above, he already says that he's not only uh, declaring, he's, he's actually declaring that they are bound in conscience to accept these decisions, right? But he's already said they're guilty of temerity for refusing them, and guilty of grave sin for contradicting them. Uh, but again, he hasn't said there, in the above paragraph, that one is excommunicated for contradicting them, nor has he said that they are infallibly decreed. Okay, So in the following paragraph, which I just read to you at some length, he adds to the fact that it's, there's a, a, a crime of temerity and grave sin, he adds to that by saying that in order to check the daily increasing audacity of many modernists who are trying, he says, by all kinds of foolish arguments to take away from the force and the efficacy of these two decrees, right, the syllabus and the encyclical pecendi. he says, we, by our apostolic authority, Repeat and confirm the decree of the sacred congregation and the encyclical letters of Peshendi, adding the penalty of excommunication for contradicting them. That's what he says adding the penalty of excommunication against their contradictors. And this we declare and decree that should anybody which may, God forbid, be so rash as to defend any one of the propositions, opinions, or teachings condemned in these documents, he falls ipso facto under the censure contained... Now, here's where we get a little curious. Under the censure contained under the chapter Docentes of the Constitution Apostolic Sedis, which means if you want to know what that is, you have to go to that chapter, docentes in the Constitution of Cities, because that's what he's referring to. He says it's the first among the excommunications lati Sententiae, simply reserved to the Roman Pontiff. The next, parag- the next sentence, though, is very revealing, actually, if you want to really uh, decipher the meaning of this, and as far as the infallibility of these documents. Uh, this is what he says. This excommunication is to be understood as salvi penis, salvi's penis, which may be incurred, which may be incurred by those who have violated in any way the said documents, as propagators and defenders of heresies. When their propositions, see, there's, he's qualifying this Opinions and teachings are heretical. So he's saying, he's actually implying, to say the least, that there are those who can... uh, propagate, you know, contradictions of these and they, they may not actually be actually heresies themselves. But the saying may not actually be heretical. Interesting that that's what he says, that this censure applies when their propositions, opinions and teachings are heretical. As has happened more than once in the case of the adversaries of both of these documents. So, when he says that, yes, if, if their own teachings are heretical in themselves, yes, they're subject to these excommunications. And he goes on and says, it's happened more than once in the case of adversaries, which indicates that it, it's not the case every time, but they're actually openly teaching a heresy. you know. So, uh, in other words, we can understand from the actual document itself, in which the Pope Bias the tenth is talking about the consequences or the censures that result from contradicting uh, Pashendi and contradicting the syllabus. We can understand what he himself, from what he himself says, that the censure of excommunication extends to those who are actually out, teaching out an heresy. Okay, and uh, but he indicates here that not everyone who contradicts. Uh, what is said in the syllabus, for example, is itself himself upholding a heresy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that last sentence I think is worth reading again because it's lengthy, it's complicated, but I think it, it really answers the question. This excommunication is to be understood as salvis penis, which may be, in, may be incurred by those who have violated in any way the said documents as propagators and defenders of heresies when their propositions, opinions, and teachings are heretical, as has happened more than once in the case of the adversaries of both of these documents, especially when they advocate the errors of the modernists, that is, the synthesis of all heresies." So, uh, the toughest words in the document are reserved for the errors of the modernists, okay? Um and um he says, yes, there have been occasions when their teachings have been out and out heretical, and the excommunication necessarily applies to them. Sure. So uh but again, he does not use anywhere in, in these three documents the uh appeal to the supreme apostolic authority uh of uh, which would indicate um, you know, in, 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 in a claim of infallibility. Mm-hmm. Do we accept it? Absolutely we do. Uh, would it be gravely sinful not to? Absolutely it is. But again, not everything the church proclaims is, has to be uh, infallibly presented right. to us, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: we have not only the extraordinary magisterium, we also have the ordinary magisterium of the church. And uh, to contradict either one of those, the use of the extraordinary magisterium, the ordinary magisterium, would be, even could make something heretical, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore to be condemned out of hand for that reason. Um, so anyway, it's a little more complicated. I guess the point is, it's a little more complicated, and uh, I can see why the writer thought, well, if it's not infallible, then it is, uh, you know... <laughs> He doesn't put it this way, but subject to being being erroneous, and here it is, you know, actually condemning the errors of of modernists and liberals, and uh, and uh, but the fact is, it is not subject to being erroneous. It, it really comes down to the Pope Pius the tenth restating Catholic doctrine.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Well, then I thought I could follow up with another email regarding excommunication. Um, We had a viewer who wrote and asked, asked, why has the church not invoked Latte Cetentiae for President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and other high-profile Catholics in public office who strongly advocate abortion?
0: Well, he's talking about the Nova Soto church. If he's he's talking about the church uh, that came out of Vatican II, uh, the New Order conciliar church with its conciliar faith of modernism, it's conciliar religion, uh, why has it not uh, condemned their uh, support of abortion? Uh, Well, it's simply because they do not uphold the Catholic faith. The, the, The Novus Ordo is a rejection of the true traditional Catholic faith. And so they would actually consider Nancy Pelosi and Joseph Biden as more representative of their religion than Archbishop Lefebvre or you or I would be uh, in their eyes. Uh, And in their eyes, Joseph Biden is more Catholic than you or I. Uh, In their eyes, Nancy Pelosi is more Catholic than you or I, because we hold to the traditional faith, and they support abortion. And they they, uh, condemn abortion in lip service only, When they do it all, although Francis initially said when he was first crowned the emperor's emperor of the of the Vatican II Church, the Novus um said that we shouldn't obsess about abortion, right? Uh and that shows the importance of it or lack of importance of it in his mind. Um but that is much more acceptable to him, much more well, even if he considers it an evil, much more tolerable to him than being a traditional Catholic and want to adhere to the traditional Mass. So uh, our writer uh, evidently is is, uh, is still very confused in thinking that uh, uh, the Novus Ordo is the Catholic religion um, and that it is the Catholic Church and it's not. It doesn't speak for the Catholic Church clearly. It does not. And when it does pronounce things, it pronounces things that are very... Uh, uh, inimical to the Catholic faith and Catholic religion so um, I, I'm rather surprised that the individual would consider it to be surprising that the Novus Ordo uh, you know would refrain from condemning such things the condemnations of the Novus Ordo are reserved for a traditional Catholic mm-hmm. and the practice of traditional Catholicism
1: exclusively well yes it,
0: it would appear that way
1: all right uh, well then the second question father uh he asks uh when christ was interred in the tomb a large boulder was rolled to cover the entrance he says the scriptures tell us that mary magdalene was on her way easter morning to the tomb but if the entrance was blocked what exactly was she on her way there to do
0: well you should read the scriptures right the gospels tell us that the woman Mary Magdalene and the other women were on their way to anoint the body, right? The body had to, of our Lord had to be taken down from the cross very hastily because the, uh, the Sabbath day was upon them, right? Uh, six o'clock in the evening was approaching very rapidly. And uh, after that, they could undertake no, no labor. So the bodies had to be removed. They were removed hast- hastily. That's why they went to break the legs of those who were condemned so that they would die quickly and their bodies could be removed. Uh, they didn't break our Lord's legs because he had already died. And the soldier uh, drove the spear through the uh, the heart of our Lord, opening his heart. That's when the blood and water flowed out, as we read from St. John. The bodies were removed rather hastily and taken away. Our Lord's body was carried to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which was not far away, actually, and uh, and buried there. But they didn't have time to do the usual... Uh, ministrations uh, of respect for the body and burial as it should have been done. So they had to bury the body, roll the stone across the tomb, seal it, and leave hastily and wait until the end of the Sabbath. That's why the women were coming back early Sunday morning. Uh, The sun had just risen. And that's why the women said to each other, well, who will roll the stone back for us? It's as though it suddenly occurred to them as they were on their way. Maybe they knew that the guards were there guarding the tomb. They No doubt they heard about that. Uh, and it, Perhaps at first it occurred to them maybe the, maybe the soldiers would help. But obviously uh, that probably wasn't going to happen. Because The soldiers were there to make sure no one did roll the stone back and uh, go into the tomb. So these women were undertaking quite a mission there. Uh, thinking that they could get access to the body, past the soldiers, past the uh, the stone, and yet they were on their way in all uh, devout simplicity, and um, they were quite shocked to find the soldiers gone and to find the, the tomb open, because the stone had rolled back for them. And we know how, right? An angel of the Lord came and uh, rolled the stone back and actually sat upon it, right? And... Um, the soldiers were struck as dead men, right? And uh, our Lord rose and uh, the women found the tomb empty except for the, uh, the shroud, right? The angels greeted them and uh, told Mary Magdalene in particular to go to the apostles and particularly Peter and to inform him what she had seen. The Lord is risen. So uh, that's what the women were going to do. But he should read the Gospels, read the conclusions of the the four Gospels, St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, and St. John, and that will answer all of his questions.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next email, <clears throat> the viewer says, I enjoy your show. I'm a lifelong Catholic. I recently started to attend the Latin Mass in Rochester, New York. He says, my question is, since it seems you do not regard the Novus Order Church as valid, does that mean you do not acknowledge Francis as Pope? If you do not, and you are not be Contest in philosophy, then who is your Pope?
0: Well, that's a question that people often ask, like, who is your Pope? Who is your Pope? Who is your Pope? And they ask that question as though it's just understood that, you know, you ha- there has to be a Pope. Um, and it is a question that is asked with good will and good intentions, but it is actually asked somewhat out of ignorance. It's a misconception. Uh, the fact is, the church has been without uh, popes for two hundred and sixty times in the course of her existence. Um, in other words, if you were to figure that out over the course of two thousand years, and uh, two hundred and you know, say sixty times, the church has been without a pope when one pope dies, and it takes some time to organize getting the clergy, the cardinals, together to elect another pope. And sometimes it has actually taken years. And the Church has simply carried on in her mission of saving souls all that time. Um, it, it, people act as though the Church cannot exist without a Pope, and though it's impossible. Uh, but the fact is, the Church has done so uh, hundreds of times, literally. Uh, you'd have to say that for every single century of the Church's existence, on the average, She has been without a pope approximately about 13 13 times for every century. The church has been without a a living pontiff. And the church carries on. The church is immortal. The church lives um, because Christ is actually the, the invisible, but the real head of the church. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. The pope is his representative. When the representative dies, as inevitably the representative will die, because he's mortal, right, and another representative has to be chosen, that is a vicar of Christ, Uh, there's a time elapse when the church does not have a reigning vicar of Christ here on earth, a visible pope. But the church continues on her way, she continues, um, by the power of the Holy Ghost, uh, to follow the, well, you might call it the trajectory of her tradition. She follows the precedent of tradition, always, and never wavers and never deviates from that. That is how we know that Vatican II is wrong, because it deviated from Catholic tradition in a stark, shocking manner. And what came out of Vatican II we know is wrong because it's deviated from Catholic tradition in a shocking manner and has brought us to this now. So I would say rather to this individual, well, who is, who is your Pope? Is it Francis? Do you really, really think without any question in your mind that Francis is the vicar of Christ on earth and what he says is magisterial? And that means it has the magisterium of the Catholic Church and that authority behind it. Or do you not find that Francis actually has contradicted Catholic teaching, uh, outrageously uh, vitiated and and attacked Catholic tradition, right? And... um, that actually he fits more in the description of an anti-Pope than an actual Catholic Pope. Do you not realize that? I'd say to whoever wrote, you know, if it's a man or woman, I don't know if i call him man or her, but I would say to this individual, you know, you really ought to look at Catholic tradition, tells it what it says, that if a Pope were to lose the faith, uh, that he, you know, there, there's a very strong Catholic position, perfectly Catholic position, that he would lose the papacy. It's assuming he was the pope in the first place. Uh, he had the papacy to lose in the first place. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, look, look at it this way, Tom. Let's, let's say there was an interregnum. A pope had died, and they were about to elect, they were gathering to elect another pope. Okay. Now, anyone could say during that time, even during that three-year period, well, who is your pope? Who is your pope? Where is the pope? And uh, one might say, well, no pope has been elected yet. But suppose someone were to say, well, I'll be the pope. And you have an anti-pope stand up and say, well, look, obviously we need a pope. And so I guess I'll, I'll you know, if nobody else is pope, I guess I'll do it, right? And everybody would say, well, you can't be the pope. You know, you're not elected uh, legitimately. But the reason why I, I mentioned this poor analogy is that... Um, we as Catholics know the history of the church and we know how many times there have been anti-popes who have claimed the papacy falsely. And one might say, well, it's an evil to to reject a true pope. It's also an evil to accept an anti-pope. That is an evil too. And people who rashly accept Francis as the, he must be the pope because he lives in the address and he wears the white garment and as far as we know, he was elected, even though it was a rigged election by the, by the St. Gallen Mafia. They admit it now. They, they actually take credit for it. <clears throat> um, but, I mean, he's really about all, the only pope we've got, so we just have to accept him, uh, whether he's Catholic or not. And I say, well, uh, be very careful about that, because, y- yes, it, it is very wrong to reject a true legitimate pope, who has an absolute clear claim to the papacy, which Francis does not. But it's also a very evil thing to accept an illegitimate pope and to follow an anti-pope in his place. And uh, that is what I'm afraid people are kind of missing, uh, the the danger they're in, the risk they're taking in blindly following Francis with all of the problems associated with him and uh, with his uh, claimed pontificate. Um, Those who do their homework, though, and learn the the background of his election, those who understand his lack of faith and his even hostility to the true faith, now very, very flagrant, right? Um, Well, I think uh, that in light of Catholic tradition, the very least we can say, which is what we do say, actually, is that there is an objective doubt about whether or not he's a pope, the vicar of Christ on earth. And every a Catholic has, has the right and even the obligation to uh, make a prudential judgment on that fact, of whether he can in conscience recognize, according to his faith, recognize Francis as a true vicar of Christ on earth, based upon the history of his election and upon his own actions and words. Very serious questions. And uh, that if you, if, you, if you answer that question in the light of Catholic tradition, first of all, if you raise the question in the light of Catholic tradition, you realize that you're being perfectly Catholic and raising that question. Because others before us, generation after generation before us, raised that same question. What is necessary to be a Pope? What, how can a Pope lose the papacy? Is it possible? And yes, they did answer that question for us. These are very Catholic people. We're talking about popes, we're talking about doctors of the faith, and, and uh, canonized saints, and sometimes popes and canonized saints and doctors of the faith all at once, Answer me the question, yes, it is possible for a pope to lose the papacy if he lost the faith. It's not being uncatholic, and those who try to make it so are violating Catholic tradition, and they're every bit as, as, worse as, as bad as the modernists, as far as I'm concerned. They reject Catholic tradition in saying that you can't even ask that question. It kind of reminds me of the cancel culture going on here. You can't even ask that question. You're not allowed to. We will not allow you to answer that question, to ask the question, let alone answer it. Um, in in conformity with Catholic tradition, we do raise the same question that our Catholic ancestors raised for centuries, and uh, but we also, in conformity with Catholic tradition, say we do not have the, the authority to answer it, though. The question is there. It's been raised in the past by our Catholic forbearance. <clears throat> it's perfectly traditional to raise that question. But the fact is, only the Catholic, the Magisterium of the Catholic Church can answer that question, and we do not have the confidence to answer it for the whole Church. But we certainly have the, the power, we certainly have the right, we certainly have the necessity. Each one of us, of uh, deciding whether or not you know there is real authority in Francis' commands, especially when, clearly when it comes to a, uh, commands to abandon the faith. Obviously, there's no authority there. Mm-hmm. You cannot do that,
1: okay. and we can't uh, follow
0: him. In uh, attacking and destroying, or trying to destroy the, ch- the church, we can't we cannot follow him there.
1: Right. Okay. It's very interesting, Father. Um, maybe last last email that I will read to you tonight. A viewer asks if an SSPX layperson would be able to receive sacraments from Father Jenkins or another Society of Saint Pius fifth priest.
0: Well, generally speaking, yes. We when we have a. Pre, uh, a Catholic person come to us from one of the Society of Saint Pius X chapels. Uh, we assume that they are traditional Catholics. Uh, obviously, we don't agree with uh, a number of the positions taken by the Society of Saint Pius X. Uh, we talked about that last time in the letter from Father Pagirandi, in which he actually compares the traditional, well, what we I guess one would call the traditionalists. Who adhere to the traditional mass, or at least the nineteen sixty two liturgy, with those who adhere to the um, to the modern mass, as it's called, of of, uh, of um, Paul VI, When Father Pagliarani even invokes Saint Augustine, what does he say here? He says, "This is from his letter." This battle that has been waged for the past 50 years, which has just seen a highly significant event on July 16th, that's Francis's motu proprio against the 1962 Missal, is not a simple war between two rights. It is indeed a war between two different opposing conceptions of the Catholic Church and of Christian life, conceptions that are absolutely irreducible and incompatible with each other. In paraphrasing St. Augustine, one could say that the two masses have built two cities. The mass of all times has built a Christian city. The new mass seeks to build a humanist and secular city. Well, the very fact that he couches it in this language shows the absolute uh, radical opposition which he, he cites here between the Novus Ordo and this liturgy and the traditional faith and its mass, right? Mm-hmm. And that they are they're radically opposed to each other. They're, they're two different faiths, essentially. What he's saying here it, 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 it's unmistakable. He's acknowledging these are two different religions here, and yet he still likes to present them as though they were in the same church, one of the same church has these two different religions battling it out, and we say that this is impossible but when he says when he says that there are two different conceptions of the catholic church about this right between the novus ordo and the traditional i would say yes that's true but you also have a false conception of the catholic church if you think that both of these religions are in the same one of the same church you yourself I'm mistaken in this. Your very concept of the Catholic Church is f- f- faulty here. Your ecclesiology is, is abysmal, and uh, it too resembles more the modernist concept of the Church than it does the traditional concept of the Church. Because the modernist concept of the Church is that you can have multiple different faiths and religions in the same Church. Even mutually opposed religions and faiths, you can have them in the same Church. That's the modernist ecumenism. So does Father Pagliari, in fact, recognize that there are two radically opposed concepts of the Church at work in the traditional concept of the traditional Catholic faith and in the Novus Ordo, who the modernists who follow it? And if he does realize this, how can he say these two mutually opposed, radically inimical concepts uh, which are incompatible with each other, nonetheless still form one church and are in the same church. That, I say, is precisely uh, the modernist concept. Um, so, it, it's it's mind-boggling to me how um, this, this thinking can be. It, it seems very, very muddled to me, to say the least. But nonetheless, I mean, there are many, many good people who go to uh, the traditional Mass. They go to... The, it's a 1962 John the Twenty Third changed version of the of the liturgy, of the traditional Mass. But um, they go there looking for the traditional faith and to practice the traditional faith. And they are Catholics. They have the, the traditional faith and in its integrity. Those people do come to, and receive communion with us and we do not turn them away. Uh, and I think... I I think that actually casts a certain light on the previous writer, too. Because as we go down the community rail, we don't ask people what they think of Francis. We don't ask people, do you accept Francis or not? Do you reject him or do you accept him? Do you think he's a true Pope or do you reject him and say he's an anti-Pope? We don't ask people that question. Because, uh, again, we uh, see that... uh, it's not up to us to, as it were, solemnly defined, define the, uh, the, the infallible answer to that question. We're not the Magisterium of the Church, we can't pretend to be. Um, so we, we don't have that as some kind of a loyalty oath or anything of the kind, or some kind of a test question to know whether people get received communion or not. If I have people come to me from uh, the Society of St. Pius Tenth for Mass and come to the Communion Rail to receive Communion, I don't ask them if they, uh, if they adhere to the Society of St. Pius X's view on Francis or not. I don't know if they even know what it is, frankly. Um, but uh, I presume they're going to the Society of St. Pius X because they want to practice the traditional Catholic faith. In it. And uh, Now, Tom, it's, it's actually a more interesting question than you realize. <laughs> because uh, at the height of the, the COVID crisis here when churches were being shut down, and uh, I know not all of the SSPX churches or chapels closed down. Some of them did. I know across the river here, uh, across the Ohio River in Kentucky, um, the, the large uh, Society of St. Pius Tenth installation did close down for some weeks, and then rationed the liturgy only a small number could attend. Uh, were allowed in the church. They had a social distance. They had to come and receive communion by families. The priest could, uh, I understand, purify his hands between each one family and the next. That's what I was told. And uh, realizing that because of the, the Democrat governor across the uh, river there in Kentucky, um, they were kind of under the under the Democrat. Covid gun. Um, here we did not. We did not close down. I was, uh, uh, shall we say, interviewed by the health department here, but made it very clear that uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ established the church and said, "Do, do this in memora- do this in commemoration of me at the Last Supper," and died on the cross, uh, we, I couldn't exactly tell our Lord um, as an excuse. Well, I know, Lord, that you gave us the Mass, and I know you wanted us to offer the Mass, and I know you wanted us to give the sacraments to people, but you know that the the Health Department here in Norwood told me I couldn't, so, you know, given the choice, I had to kind of do what they wanted. Uh, I was told that um, the local Health Department and the governor of the state really preferred that we close down the church, but this made it very clear that that wasn't going to happen and couldn't happen, and so we kept going, day by day, day by day, church, the doors were open, the Mass was being offered. Uh, We didn't stop, didn't miss a beat, in fact, quite the contrary. Uh, We went from two Sunday Masses, which were substantially, you know, rather filled, uh, in a fairly large church, seats uh, over 600 people, to having four Masses. And the reason why we went to four Masses was to allow people to spread out a bit. But I also thought, well, if when the, if and when the church, uh, the Pius X Church closes across the river, there are going to be people there who are going to want to attend mass. And uh, I felt kind of an, an obligation to at least try to make it mass attendance possible for them. So here we went from uh, basically a a Sunday capacity of 1,200 to a Sunday capacity of 2,400 souls uh, who could have attended Mass. Uh, And I I expected that uh, when the people, uh, the SSPX people across the river were told, no, we can't allow you, Uh, even when we're, we're allowed to have Mass at all on Sunday, We can only allow a certain number of people, and most of you will have to be excluded. Um, I really expected that the people there would find their way across the river, (laughs) find their way across the bridge, and uh, uh, actually come to the Mass that was available to them. Very few did. Very few did. That was very, I should say, disillusioning to me, as though I was under some kind of illusion. Because I was, I was actually shocked at how few actually did attend the Mass, come to Mass when they had it available to them, but simply accepted the fact, uh, accepted what they were told that, no, you can't have this. And all because the Democratic governor of the state of Kentucky said, no, you can't have that, and his health department. The fact that they, they just kind of accepted that, well, we can't go to Mass, period. I mean, and uh, not even drive a few extra miles. Wouldn't be that far for them. In fact, others, uh, many of them in the past had been to Mass, at Our Lady, uh, at at Immaculate Conception, right? But when that happened, and they simply threw up their arms and said, okay, well, I guess we can't go to Mass this Sunday because the church is being closed down here in Walton, Kentucky. I mean, uh, that was an enormous disappointment to me, and I began to to question the commitment, Um, their real commitment. I mean, here we were, you might say, going out on a limb, but, you know, it was, I didn't consider it that myself, but I suppose many did, Uh, not only to keep the Church open for our own people, but to even enable them, to uh, others, to be able to come, you know, and to have access to Mass and the sacraments, which answers the question that uh, the previous
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Questioner asked. And uh, so, very, very few were willing to, I don't know, make the effort, sacrifice. Maybe it didn't even occur to them. I don't know. Said, we did send word that uh, they would be welcome here in the kind of a port in the storm. Um, but anyway, so, in answer to the, the previous question, yes. Actually, in answer to this questioner, I guess, yes. <laughs> right. So, anyway, um, now they say that they're going to be imposing more restrictions. Okay? Um, they're trying to ramp this up again. They're trying to uh, get us ready for imp- imposed and uh, to enforce, I think they're using the word enforced now, enforced um, getting stuck. You have to use the word, they, uh, they're going to stick us and enforce it. So there are going to be sanctions and penalties. Uh, there are already many people who are facing these uh, in, in their schools, in their workplaces. Um, it, it, there, there are workplaces and schools that are simply... Um, being very, very uh, unaccepting of exemptions, religious exemptions, or conscientious objections, or health exceptions that could be given. No, there's there's a, a madness behind all of this to insist that everyone must receive uh, their magic potion. Right, everyone has to accept it. Uh, it's a form. It's a it's a loyalty thing. It's a matter of like taking the oath of allegiance to Henry VIII as the new head of the church, I guess. It's sort of a <clears throat> an oath of loyalty to, to the regime. Um, and it's, you know, the, the, the mandatory um, face coverings led to what is going to be the mandatory stickings, and the mandatory stickings are going to lead to the next mandatory thing. Um, you you notice, if we, if we don't mind getting off the track a little bit here, um, I am concerned about this because it is affecting a lot of good people. Uh, a lot of traditional Catholic people are being affected by this now. Uh, and I think what's coming is going to affect us all even more so. <clears throat> you see, when it came to um, uh, sticking people with this uh, magic formula of theirs, uh, they 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 were saying we can get back to normal. They made a false promise. They knew they were lying. Uh, now they tell everybody, well, you still have to wear masks. You have still have to wear them, uh, even in your homes when you're around children under twelve or whatever. Uh, they're advising even those who are f- fully stuck. You know, to no, no. You you might be carriers and you might still contract. I mean, the majority of those in some areas who are coming down with. It, new strains, are fully vaccinated. And it's hitting them very hard, you know. Not so much so that the propaganda mills are trying to suppress this, madly trying to suppress this, this fact, it's reality. But um, we have to, to realize that they go from one to the other. and see, the the idea of now enforcing the sticking, okay, <clears throat> they realized that all of those people who have given in to basically, well, the word essentially means to be cowed. Okay, that's what the word actually means, to be cowed, to be made (coughs) cow-like. Those who have actually gone ahead and gotten stuck and been made cow-like, that they knew that even after they had gotten stuck, they'd go along with continued restrictions on them because they'd already go alo- gone along with everything else. So even though they promised them, yes, get this done and you can get back to normal and everything will be fine. But those who are enforcing this on them, those who are, who are behind this and holding the, the, this, the, 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 the device, you know, the stabber, the sticker, the <laughs> sticker, they know, well, these are the people already have given in every step of the way already, so we can convince them to go ahead and do it, and they're still going to take whatever restrictions we put on them anyway. Because they've already shown they're going to go along with whatever we do. But the people who refuse it, they're the ones we have to... Now they're the ones we have to enforce. We have to, we have to force them to accept that, no matter what. Because somehow they feel that if they can't get they can't cow people into accepting it, that there's still resistance out there. And they can't brook resistance. It's like the devil himself. He cannot tolerate resistance. No tyrant can. Cannot tolerate resistance from anyone. And this is what we're dealing with here. So um, so we have to realize that uh, it is a spiritual battle. It is not... It is not uh, uh you know matters of worldly powers here it really is principalities and powers of darkness in high places here or low places and for that we have to be spiritually strong the spiritual strength comes from the, the true mass and the sacraments it comes from receiving our lord worthily in holy communion regularly as often as we can it comes from living in the state of grace it comes from being a warrior for our lord jesus christ it comes from realizing that all of this is about him. It really is. It is a rebellion against him. It is a rebellion against God and God's order and things. All of this from beginning to end, right? Uh, and we, for our own sake, we, for, in our right, we have to be warriors for our Lord. We have to be absolutely loyal and faithful to him in every way. We have to be more dedicated to his kingship than they are to attacking and defying him. And we see how devoted they are in their malice and hatred toward God, toward our Lord. We see how absolutely dedicated, how all-in they are, like Lucifer himself. Well, we have to be all-in when it comes to our faith and our love for our Lord. We have to be all-in. There's not going to be any middle ground. There's not going to be any fence to sit on anymore. Our Lord wants us to declare ourselves, right? So we have to declare ourselves absolutely for him. And what that means we can't be uh, mealy mouthing around when it comes to the Novus Ordo anymore. We can't be uh, just kind of entertaining the Novus Ordo and trying to find some middle ground there. There is no middle ground. Father Pagliarani makes the argument for it, but then fails to make the conclusion. Well, we have to make the conclusion, we have to draw the conclusion. And the conclusion means we have to be faithful to the traditional Catholic faith and religion. Absolutely. We cannot waver. And we have to refuse modernism, liberalism, leftism, any of these other false, false religions that are basically all coming down to the occult and Satanism. We have to absolutely refuse to submit to that. Amen. So, I, mm-hmm. there. I've my my, my, said my piece.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for everything that you do. We appreciate it.
0: We'll Tom. Right Thank you. Yep. God bless you.
1: Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.